It is Tuesday, February 13th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, the cold snap in January doesn't negate the reality of global warming. All the data we have from across the globe points very clearly to a warming world, and it's it's not even close. It's 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 absurd to to try to even try to make a case that the earth isn't warming. Plus, a new book about banking that's a family affair. I told my son, I know you want to write your own stories and your own book, but can you kind of write about a topic that's near and dear to me? And the big gay market is planning their spring awakening. I don't enjoy it as much just because of those concerns. Um, So it's really nice to be able to celebrate ourselves and to be ourselves year-round. First up, the latest news from NPR. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season Saturday, February 17th at Walton Arts Center with Defying Expectations, showcasing three works that push beyond barriers from Darius Mio's eclectic style to Louise Farang's bold third symphony and Max Brooks' acclaimed violin concerto featuring Sona concertmaster Winona Fifield. Tickets at sonamusic.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, February 13th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF Public Radio, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Later on our show, the big gay market is happening again, this time in a new location and a new time of year. Ozarks at Large's Sophia Narani brings us the details about the spring awakening market in our second half hour. First up, This January was frigid across Arkansas. The state saw several inches of snow, a layer of ice, and sub-zero temperatures numerous times. So, what does this cold stretch tell us about the status of climate change globally? Darby Bybee is the chief meteorologist for 4029 News. He joined me last week to discuss a topic he says he spends all day, every day, thinking about weather and climate data. Darby says this January was by no means the coldest on record, but... I mean, it got to negative 10 at Drake Field. <laughs> I mean, if, if you were to ask uh, people from other parts of the country, even in the Midwest, like, what do you think the coldest temperature in Arkansas was in January? Oh, I don't know. It probably got down to 15 or 10 degrees. No, it got to negative 10. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was really cold there. It got really cold in Fort Smith as well. You know, Northwest Arkansas, at least at Drake Field, is the coldest since 2014, though very close to 2018. It was nowhere even close to the coldest January on record, but it was, there was a stretch, right? There was a stretch there where it got really cold, and there was a little bit of cold air before that. And of course, it warmed up toward the end of the month, but uh, ended up being, I think, 2.8 degrees below average at Drake Field, and about three point, around three and a half degrees colder than average in Fort Smith. So, Absolutely. There's a nasty cold stretch there and in, impressive for sure, but not not even remotely close to the coldest we've ever seen. Do you think that the amount of precipitation plays a role in how we gauge how cold something is? It, yeah, well, so, sure. I mean, you, you hear people talk about it all the time. You know, a wet cold is worse than a dry cold, right? I'd rather be and you hear people say this sometimes. I don't know if I agree, but I'd rather be negative or I'd rather be, uh, let's say, 20 degrees rather than 40 degrees and raining. And I, I kind of get that, I guess. But but what happened here 
is we did have a pretty significant warming event over the North Pole in the stratosphere around mid-month. And and that likely is connected to the cold air that was experienced not just here, but all across the middle of the country in mid-January. It's what we call a stratospheric warming event. It did not lead, as far as I understand, to a full reversal of the uh, stratospheric polar winds. And so if you can envision the North Pole way, way, way up in elevation, I mean, we're talking many, many, many thousands of feet um, up around where planes fly, but even really higher than that, okay, In, in an area where you wouldn't think anything going on up there would have any effect on what's going on at the surface. Well, it, it can. It's not perfectly understood uh, by experts how these stratospheric warming events affect significant cold air outbreaks over North America, but there there is a connection. It doesn't always play out the same way, but generally speaking, if you see a significant warming of the, the stratosphere over the North Pole, it, it tends to basically lead to a situation in which a lot of the cold air at the surface in, in the higher latitudes gets pushed south into uh, the lower latitudes. And it doesn't just have to be here. Sometimes when that happens, it gets pushed south over Europe or, or, or somewhere else. But frequently, it does, it does happen that uh, we get that colder air. Now, we've got another one of these stratospheric warming events we think that's going to happen here later in the month of February. And, and that could lead to maybe another plunge of significant cold air uh, toward the end of the month or even into early March. So what that does is it takes what would normally be cold air above the North Pole and moves it away from the North Pole. Am it forces that? it southward, but it doesn't have to force it southward over North America. Sometimes right. it'll force it southward somewhere else over the Northern Hemisphere. And so the work that's happening there is what's causing the cold weather that we experienced here. It's likely, not a guarantee, but it's likely that there is a link. Um, how direct of a link is is hard to say exactly, but there's there's almost certainly a link. And so we watch for these things, you know, and, 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 and if we see it looks like this might happen, then we know, okay, there, there could be significant cold air pushed down at some point in the next few weeks. We have a hard time, especially if we're not trained meteorologists like you are, that when we see a really cold stretch of weather, we might be led to believe, okay, well, maybe global warming isn't that big of a deal. Maybe we're we're overthinking it or we're putting too much emphasis on this thing. But the way it sounds to me is that this warming that's happening at the North Pole is actually possibly causing this cold weather that we're experiencing right. here. Well, and, and it's important to keep in mind that we don't know of a direct link between global warming and the stratospheric warming events. There may be, there may not be. We haven't necessarily seen an increase in the number of times this occurs. So we don't know if there's a link there. But the very basic reality is the Earth is still warming. Just because it, we get a period of cold air here doesn't mean that the entire planet is cooled. Every single day throughout the course of the year, there, there's going to be a part of the planet that's experiencing, you know, much colder than average weather. Well, at that same time, there are still <laughs> it's more numerous that there there are areas on the planet where it's significantly significantly warmer than average. Um, so just because it's really cold here doesn't mean it's cold everywhere. I think most people understand that 
even around here, our, our weather has gradually gotten warmer uh, over the last century. What, what's interesting to note is that we just happen to live in, the, in a part of the world where we've experienced, or at least a part of the United States, where we've experienced some of the least amount of warming. When you look at the Northeast, when you look at the Northwest, when you look at Canada, when you look at the North, Northern Plains, uh, Northern Midwest, many parts of the United States have experienced very significant warming over the last century. Here, it's not been as pronounced, but it still is occurring. And so that it's always going on in the background, even if we're experiencing a period of cold weather. It's not representative of what's going on across the globe. Let's talk a little bit about how we've kind of shifted our language, I think, over the last 10 or 20 years. When we talk about climate change, I think a lot of us were first introduced to it with Al Gore and, and his documentary and his kind of work there. And the the kind of standard nomenclature was this idea of global warming. Um, we've, we've kind of moved away from that term and kind of moved more towards climate change. When you think about describing what's going on on kind of a more macro level as opposed to the day-to-day weather. How do you explain it to people to kind of show the importance of acknowledging what's happening and how things are shifting? Well, it's, it's as simple as you have to look at a longer period of time rather than just what's happening within the span of a day or a week or even a month. And if you look at the body of work that our, our climate has kind of uh, produced over our area and certainly North America, it's clear that we've, we've warmed a lot. You know, the climate has more to do with you know, averages over a long period of time, whereas weather is a day-to-day deal uh, or even week-to-week. And whether you call it global warming or whether you call it climate change, it doesn't really matter that much. Global warming is more specific. It has to do with the amount of warming that's occurred uh, globally. Climate change is maybe a little broader. It, and and it, it, when, you, when you say climate change, you're really kind of talking about all the other things that go along with the warming. So really climate change is probably a better way of putting it because not only is the earth warming, but that is leading to changes in certain climate patterns, more so in some parts of the world and less so in others. Uh, We happen to live in a part of the world where we've seen somewhat less warming and therefore the changes aren't as pronounced. But there are parts of the world in which it's almost unbelievable if, especially if you've lived there your entire life, you, you, you can see it, you can feel it, and in some ways you can smell it. Uh, maybe it's because things bloom earlier in the season or, or because fall just comes in later in the season, especially at the northern latitudes. And so you, the experience is going to be different for everybody. Some folks who live on the coast, you know, anywhere in the world – are going to experience more sea level rise than others. Not everyone's going to experience the same sea level rise. So you might experience disastrous conditions in places like Miami, maybe, while uh, New York City may not experience the same sort of coastal flooding and the same sort of uh, rise in sea level. It's not going to raise the same. So even, even along the coasts, the effects aren't going to be the same from here on out, and we'll, we'll experience, you know, for us, what we'll experience a little bit more of is 
probably going to be flash flooding events. We're likely to experience, and that's in an area of the country that already sees a lot of flash flooding events. That's one of the deadliest hazards in this part of the, the world. And so everyone's going to experience the effects of climate change differently, but the impacts are, are worldwide. You and I both have little ones. When you think about the sort of work you do, the sort of research and, and that kind of thing that you do, do you think about the impact of the work that you're doing and how that can maybe help to change some minds or to help impact folks who have more <laughs> authority and, and ability to do things that will make it a little bit easier for Greer and Teddy? Yeah, I, I think about that all the time. And and I what, I what I've come to believe is that you can't change people's minds by trying to beat it into their heads. That, that doesn't work. It never works. It doesn't work with regardless of whatever, whatever it is you're trying to convince people of. It, it's, um, it's useless because you've got to build trust. You, you have to build trust. The only way you build trust is simply by being honest with people, showing them that the data that you're looking at, showing them the pictures, the lack of alpine glacier ice uh, and the change in alpine glacier ice across North America and across the world, showing folks the melting that's going on uh, at the higher latitudes, you know, how much less sea ice there is um, in the northern hemisphere, how it's affecting wildlife and how it's affecting people and and you just you just continue down that path of of just showing people what is actually happening. And if you if you do that, it's a slower approach. It takes more time, and it requires you to give the people who don't believe in global warming some grace. We have to do that. We have to be willing to do that because if if you go about it in such a way that you're just screaming at people or or trying to make them feel dumb or like they just don't <laughs> know what they're talking about. If you're insulting, you can't change people's minds. You just have to you have to you have to be trusted. You have to be honest and, and if people trust you then then they're more liable to listen to you. Darby Bybee is the chief meteorologist for forty twenty nine news. He joined me in the Bruce Nan Applegate News Studio two late last week. Later this hour, when 10-year-old Liam told his mom he wanted to write a book, the project became a family affair. And in January of last year, we decided we would move forward with publishing our first children's book. And it is centered around Ella um, and just opens up our world through our eyes, our own family stories, my experience going and speaking to schools. We talk with the authors of the new book, Ella the Banker, ahead on today's Ozarks at Large. An Accelerator is hosting a 10-week program focused on cybersecurity in Bentonville. Startup Junkies Fuel Accelerator has worked with entrepreneurs and startups over the last six years with a recent focus on artificial intelligence and machine learning. Darian Harris is the director of Fuel Accelerator. He says a gap they have seen in the business-to-business market is utilizing AI and machine learning to improve cybersecurity. 
identity and access management, security operations, um, threat and vulnerability management, cloud security, um, data security, security and privacy. Those are a couple of the fields that we're looking to focus in on um, that have been identified by some of the groups that we're working with, some of the enterprises we're working with. Harris says they're looking to work with startups that are not necessarily brand new, typically companies that are post-revenue. And the idea of that is so that we can really help them scale their enterprise business, not kind of start from the idea stage. So I think everyone will see that we work with um, is typically in that seed to series A fundraising you know, kind of space. And so we really want to see companies that, you know, post-revenue are looking to sell into the large enterprises that we have here. And we've got some, some great partners and great people involved. Felix Accelerator is a no-cost and no-equity program. Harris says that allows them to follow their mission to support startups. We bring in companies from all over the world to solve technology problems that we don't have. And ultimately, the goal is to create economic development, create jobs, bring new technologies to the area. You know, kind of what's our main goal? It's really two-pronged, to help the startups and create, you know, development. The cybersecurity program is set to begin in early June. You can find out more information at fuelaccelerator.com. Late last year, the Game and Fish Commission's Northwest Arkansas staff took advantage of low water levels in Beaver Lake to add 119 new fish habitat sites to the reservoir. Game and Fish used a specially modified habitat barge to place large trees and branches in areas of the lake where woody cover was once sparse. Staff utilized large hardwood trees, lumber, and cedar trees for the new habitats. Game and Fish removed the cedars from banks surrounding Beaver Lake. This project assisted the Commission's large cedar removal project as the species has encroached on many habitats and became invasive. This is Ozarks at Large. The new children's book, Ella the Banker, is a family project. It's a collaboration between 10-year-old Liam Sprinkle and his mom, Shamima Kola. Liam's 8-year-old sister, Ella, is the inspiration for the book. Last week, Shamim, Liam, and Ella joined me on Zoom from their Little Rock home. And Ella was more than eager to show me the book. This is the hardcover, the front side. It's beautiful. The back side, the spine. Ella the banker follows children as they take a field trip to a bank. Liam says he became inspired to write his own book when he was reading Harry Potter. I decided that I was going to be an author, and in, when I was in fourth grade, I, we met a publisher at an event, and he said that we should make a book. It's a children's book, and I'm going to make chapter books, but it's a good start. Okay, so, Mom, you have a burgeoning author here who says, I'm going to write a book. You obviously come in and help out. What happened then? Yeah, so he had um, been speaking about wanting to write his own stories for a little bit over a year. And we had actually bought a kit, or my sister got him a kit for Christmas. And so when we met um, with Wesley Peters and his with the publishing company, and he said, let's do this. I said, okay, um, I have a story or a narrative that I see is a gap in the industry, in the banking industry. My daughter, who's here, Ella, she wanted to be a banker like mom. And, you know, there was just gaps. And when I would go to schools, um, 
a lot of children didn't know what I did as a banker or couldn't guess. And, you know, I told my son, I know you want to write your own stories and your own book, but can you kind of write about a topic that's near and dear to me and, and is an inspiration because that's what your sister wants to do. So we had a family meeting and in January of last year, we decided we will move forward with publishing our first children's book. And it is centered around Ella um, and just opens up our world through our eyes, our own family stories, my experience going and speaking to schools, especially in low to moderate income neighborhoods and and wanting them to have a different narrative of the banking industry. You know, we don't have a lot of trust in these communities and as bankers, we know this. Um, and just twist that, you know, there's power in storytelling and 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 open that up to the children, but then also open up a lot of career opportunities that most women of color, especially in leadership or um, areas such as commercial banking, we don't tend to see. And so he is the author, she's the main character, I am mom, <laughs> and we worked with a fantastic team um, at the publishing company to bring the story to life. And it took us about eight or nine months to just get the manuscript out to the illustrator. It was it was a long process. Liam, you know, a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So how did you craft, how did you imagine what the story would be? So when my mom said that she wanted a topic to be about banking, um, we were thinking about what it would be, but we could mix banking and children's stuff in to where children like it children would like it and then i thought about a field trip because people usually remember field trips and kids like it so that's how we created the field trip topic shameen i know that from what i've read you transitioned from the nonprofit world into commercial banking what led you to that career Maybe about five years ago, um, I was invited. Well, the Arkansas Food Bank at the time was invited to for had a seat at the table with a group that was co- called Arkansas Bank on Plus, and we were the channel partners in a product that was being created by a group of banks as a second chance account, you know, to um, help the unbanked and underbanked. And I remember walking into this room. Um, at the Federal Reserve Office here in Little Rock, and it was all these big banks that were working together and collaborating, which is normally what we don't see. But they were really creating a product for the clients that I served right at the time that were coming to pantries and they trusted our space, but they were not going to the banks. And so I had the access to the clientele that the banks want. But the more I learned about like, financial deserts and neighborhoods that don't really have it. And I just really got fascinated and I wanted to do more. And um, in 2020, I turned 40 and the pandemic and all our lives got changed. And I wanted kind of work that was more purposeful and impactful, but also my children. I had, we had had them home during the pandemic and I wanted a you know flexible work schedule. And so in the pursuit of kind of a career that would give me, you know, where I'm able to make a, a bigger impact, but also have a flexible schedule. I am a single parent. I am an immigrant from Kenya. So I don't have family. I have a village of support, 
Um, and that's kind of what led me to just a career change, but I was open and I ended up landing in banking. And so my experience, like I said, working in the community and seeing families that were working, they had jobs, 40% of clients who go to a pantry are working, they are just not making a livable wage to meet their needs. Um, and knowing that banks are working so hard on the other side to meet those needs, and I felt like it would just be a perfect fit. A book has words, but it also has illustrations. How did that process work for the three of you? Actually, a friend of mine who is an educator, um, Portia, she recommended I join this Facebook group, and I was kind of talking to friends about my work. And it is a Facebook group for Black authors and illustrators. So I just joined it. It's probably 20,000 people on there. And one day somebody posted their work and he lived in Ghana. And I called my team. I said, I think I found an illustrator, but he's in Africa. <laughs> and could you contact and kind of make sure we can kind of work together through different continents and time zones? And we made it work. And so whenever we were done... We sent over the manuscript and we worked through technology. We had initial, you know, virtual meetings, but a lot of it, you know, I'm African. A lot of it was through what we call what's up. Um, and that's how we communicated. I get a feeling that, yes, children will love this book, but those of us who are older will also like it and be inspired. And that's that's the hope we um, you know, we hear a lot about financial literacy and it starts at home and there's great curriculum out, you know, all around the world. And we're hoping this could be a supplemental tool to families that they could take this book and read it with their children um, as one of those toolkits for financial literacy. But I think even for the adults that I work with that are minorities and small business owners, they're intimidated coming to the bank. They don't know who to talk to in a commercial, you know, we call it commercial team, but they're thinking small business. They, you know, and so having a way to simplify the process of what banks do, hopefully, hopefully can open up the conversations for the adults to also feel comfortable having and building a relationship with the bank and hopefully being able to access the capital to grow their business. Shamima Kola, Liam Sprinkle, and Ella Sprinkle talked with me last week from their home in Little Rock via Zoom. You can find Ella the Banker at select retail stores, as well as on Amazon and at the Arkansas Museum of Fine Arts in Little Rock. The Transgender Experience in Arkansas, or T, is a series of conversations with seven transgender youth, men, and women who reside in Northwest Arkansas. T is a production of KUAF Public Radio recorded in the Listening Lab. We ask our T guests to reveal their trans self-realization, medical integration, and social acculturation. You can follow T, the transgender experience in Arkansas, on listeninglabkuaf.com forward slash T-E-A. This is Ozarks at Large. Soups on again this Sunday in Rogers. The annual Soup Sunday fundraiser for Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families will include chefs from restaurants all across Northwest Arkansas. Randy Wilburn, the host of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast, recently spoke with two of the organizers of this year's Soup Sunday. Missy Kincaid, who is the Northwest Arkansas Development Director for AACF, and Clint Schaff, 
the 2024 Soup Sunday Committee chair. In this edited excerpt from the episode, Missy Kincaid says Arkansas Advocates is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. Especially during this time, it's just really important that we put politics aside. We believe that kids' issues should not be political, and the work that we do is on both sides of the aisle. As you mentioned, we're based in Little Rock, and we do have a Northwest Arkansas office that opened 15 years ago with Laura Kellums as our director, and she just does a phenomenal job really advocating for all kids and families here in Northwest Arkansas. As you know, as much as this economy and this part of the state is booming and we have just so many wonderful qualities of life, the fact is a lot of kids are being left behind and a lot of families are. And so we are the voice at the Capitol on behalf of those kids and those low-income families um, trying to work to find strategic solutions that will be helpful in the long term. We work with partners who do provide direct services, but we also do our work in the legislative arena. So those food banks that are feeding families every day are just critical to those family survival. But I'm proud to say we also work on the legislation, for example, that created the school breakfast program. And so we do our work in a little bit of a different way, but we think that those solutions make a tremendous impact for for kids and families here. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, again, it's it's those ti- that tireless resolve, right, to try to get something done to make a difference in the lives of others. And you guys certainly practice that at Arkansas Advocate for Children and Families. And how long has the Soup Sunday event been in existence? That's a great question. This is our 23rd Soup Sunday in Northwest Arkansas. So we were actually having this event before we even had staff up here. I actually was a volunteer 21 years ago on the committee. So the event has been growing and growing and growing. And we are now at the Rogers Convention Center. We take the entire ballroom space and we have 20 plus chefs who are committed to bringing a unique soup to our event this year. We'll have about a thousand guests of all ages. One of my favorite things about this event, and I'll let Clint talk about it as well, is that it's a family friendly foodie event. So you're going to taste soups that aren't even on menus here by our greatest chefs and you can bring your kids. We have a kid zone. We have lots of fun activities. And it's just a, a little bit different than your typical sit down chicken dinner. So throw your jeans on, bring your muffin tin because you're going to be offered so many cups of soup. It's easier to carry them with a muffin tin. And it's just a really fun, casual Sunday afternoon kind of kind of event. Absolutely. And then you've also assembled a who's who of judges for this event to actually judge the soup. Is that correct? That's right. We have Jacqueline House, who has been a great supporter of Soup Sunday, and she's coming back. We have KNWA. KNWA. I never know which which of her many hats she's wearing in that capacity. We also have the Hangry Peddler, I believe is his line. Uh, Joseph will be joining us. And we have a new judge this year, two new judges that we've secured, Kim Bryden with Curiate, a very interesting company that's growing here. It's a national organization, I believe, but she's uh, based here in Northwest Arkansas. And Clint, you tell us about our judge that you just secured. Yeah, yeah. So I host a local hip hop radio show and a couple of radio stations. So we brought in Bang, uh, aka Jeremiah Pickett, a Fayetteville-based rapper from Texarkana, also grew up in North Little Rock. And so it'll be exciting. to. He's always a fun guy and brings a lot of energy to every party that he's a part of. If every organization and every colleague if every organization was as solid as Arkansas Advocates and every colleague was as amazing as Missy, I would do this for every organization because we are having an amazing experience 
The staff, Missy, Christine, several others have just been absolutely delightful to work with. We have a really great committee that's out there pressing the pavement to recruit restaurants, bakeries. That's a new part of the, of the event this year is uh, bakeries, auction items, silent auction items, as well as entertainment. And we're all out there. We meet regularly. So we have a lot of fun rapport. And it's a pretty good time, to be honest. It's, it's, it's hard work. But it's also a great time. And we're all, of course, it's for the most important of, of causes, which is to make sure that every kid in Arkansas has a chance to succeed. And they all have access yeah. to you know, quality preschool, affordable health care, and that their parents can provide a healthy meal and home environment. Absolutely. And that's so exciting. You know, my wife, Jessica, you mentioned she couldn't be on this call today. She's traveling for work. But you know, we're, we're parents of a toddler. We have a two-year-old named Carter. And we have another child on the way. Breaking news. Okay. Yep, yep. And, um, and we're super excited about the resources we have in our family through our work and through the part of the town that we live in. But we think every Arkansan child and family should have that opportunity and some, right? So what a great thing to support an organization that complements so well all the giving individual charities, nonprofits, and faith-based organizations that exist all across the state. But it's really important that we have policies that make sure that everyone has a chance to lift up. And that's what uh, Arkansas Advocates is all about. That's what we're about. And it's just been such a pleasure to be with folks who share that passion and to, to bring whatever we can to bear to help raise important funds. Randy Wilburn's full conversation with Clint Schaff and Missy Kincaid can be found at imnorthwestarkansas.com, at kuaf.com, or through the IM Northwest Arkansas podcast, available through all podcast platforms. We hear excerpts from the podcast each Tuesday on Ozarks at Large. Full disclosure, my wife, Lori Kellams, is the director of the Northwest Arkansas Office of Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families. Tomorrow on Ozarks, a new river access park in Fayetteville. So the vision for developing the recreational aspects of this park once the dam is removed primarily focuses on getting our community to be able to access the river safely. What's in store for Combs Park and access to the West Fork of the White River? That's on tomorrow's edition of Ozarks at Large, noon and 7. 91.3 KUAF. Coming up on the Community Spotlight, the Elizabeth Richardson Center and KUAF have paired up for a book donation drive this month. So if you have been stuck at home during all the ice days that we've had and you're cleaning things out, we would love to have what you don't need anymore. Or if you are in the mood, donate something perfectly new. Drop-off boxes for the books are located at the ERC or here at KUAF at 9 South School Avenue. The Community Spotlight, your voice. Voice matters. The Arkansas Razorback women's basketball team will have time to rest after suffering back-to-back losses for the first time this season. The Razorbacks lost at Tennessee last night 81-55. This followed a four-point loss at Florida on Thursday night. Arkansas's next game, Sunday afternoon in Bud Walton Arena against Missouri. Tip-off for that contest is three. The Little Rock Trojan wrestling squad continues to climb the national polls. The Trojans are now ranked 18th in the NWACA Division I Men's Wrestling Coaches Poll. This ranking, the highest ever for the program, comes after Little Rock defeated number 23 Cal Poly. It's the third win for the Trojans over a ranked team this season. Final match of the regular season, Sunday at Lindenwood. The Pac-12 championships are set for March 10th in Corvallis, Oregon. 
and Nate Powell, Little Rock native and National Book Award winner, will return to Arkansas twice this month to discuss his upcoming graphic novel, Fall Through. Set in Arkansas, it's part of a fictional Arkansas universe he's established in previous books. He'll be at Woodsworth Books in Little Rock Friday the 23rd and at the Fayetteville Public Library Saturday the 24th. This is Ozarks at Large. In 2021, Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth spoke with the founders of the Big Gay Market about what was then the first event. It took place during Pride Month. Last week, reporter Sophie Narani sat down with the current organizers to discuss how the market has grown to become a way to support the local queer community all year long. When Big Gay Market co-founder Amanda Arafat moved to Northwest Arkansas in 2021, she didn't know many other queer people. Through her work, she eventually met a fellow queer creative named Grace Holcomb. The pair started to work to form a community that Amanda says was lacking in our area, a community that she says was being attacked. Some really, you know, upsetting and um, just unfair, uh, horrible um, bills were being attempted to be passed in Arkansas in 2021, it was just the most natural thing in the world to reach out to each other. And um, the other link that we had was that we were both um, creatives in some sense. Um, Grace is an artist and graphic designer. I am a chef and baker. And so uh, the most natural way to manifest, to try and mobilize, to try and gather was to do some sort of maker's market. And it started as a very, very small idea, like something very DIY. And that's exactly the budget we had. That's exactly the resources we had was just backyard DIY. Um, But the response to the market especially at a time post-COVID when um, the NWA quality markets were no longer going to feature um, vendor markets, um, the pride celebrations um, for COVID concerns um, and just complications. We kind of just took it upon ourselves to put it together. Amanda says they received an overwhelming positive response to the market, despite their small expectations. We had something like 1 to 1.5 thousand people attend this market that maybe we expected like 100 people to show up for. Um, And the economic impact was immediately obvious with most of the vendors selling out just straight up. Um, And a lot of vendors, you know, noted to us after that they started making product on the scene, like just impromptu to fill the demand because there are still so many people coming. So um, that just kind of explosive sort of reaction to something we had a lot of good intention for, but little um, expectation for was just such a catalyst uh, for us to just look at each other and say, oh, we have to do this again. 
And they did. Since the first big gay market, there have been several events that continue to support small queer business, and they continue to get bigger. Zero Studios' Jesse Duque has been involved since the first market. She has now taken on a larger organizational role and is already making plans for the future. From the very first market, we just, we loved it. The vibe was awesome. It was, we just felt like all one big family. Like, you know, it was just a safe space where you could be yourself, let your hair down. Um, It felt fantastic. So I was lucky that Grace and Amanda welcomed me with open arms. And turns out we work really well together. Um, You know, we all have different backgrounds and experiences. And I think that adds to our team dynamic. I think it was 2022, we formed an LLC. We decided to make things official. And since then, we've had the goal of doing one market per quarter, and we'll continue doing so. And we have plans for the future, so we'll see where where we can go with it. June is recognized as Gay Pride Month and can be a polarizing time for the queer community. Jesse says she actually prefers markets that are outside of that time frame. During Pride, I feel a lot of pressure, and I think a lot of folks in the community, you know, may relate, but there's just concerns about security and safety, and all of everything around LGBTQ gets heightened. People have a heart attack over a rainbow shirt at Target, you know, so June and Pride Month, I know for us, we're... I don't enjoy it as much just because of those concerns. Um, So it's really nice to be able to celebrate ourselves and to be ourselves year-round. But with that being said, we love being able to do this once a quarter. If we could do it more, we would. But, you know, we all have full-time jobs or, you know, we have to pay rent and things like that. So... We would love to, in our long-term future plans, have Big Gay be something that's more permanent um, and not just a spectacle in June. The next Big Gay market is called Spring Awakening, and it's taking place on March 16th at the Fayetteville Town Center. Jessie says she is hoping that the location will make the market more accessible. People don't have to deal with weather. Uh, Normally our markets are outdoors, so we're either freezing or incredibly hot. We have returning vendors and we have a lot of new vendors. Uh, We try to keep our markets diversified as far as the product categories that we offer and you can have at our markets. We're very excited to start off the year um, with this market at the Fayetteville Town Center. Fayetteville has been incredibly welcoming and just um, really opening their arms for us. Some Fayetteville sponsors for the Big Gay Market include Experience Fayetteville and the Forge Fund. Amanda says any money provided by sponsors goes directly to the vendors. All of the support we get is intentionally and very um, deliberately then 
forwarded on to the vendor community. Like those sponsorships that we get have been so amazing because we've been able to do things like, just like Jesse said, keep this a very accessible operation. If this is your first market that you've ever done, Big Gay is still the place for you. If you don't have a table, Big Gay is still the place for you. Like we can figure this out. Um, and keeping this accessible has been one of the best parts of seeing it grow is not seeing it become too far away from what it started as. For more information on Big Gay Market, you can visit their Instagram, at Big Gay Market. Vendor applications for the Spring Awakening close on February 16th. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Sophia Narani. This is Ozarks at Large. Catherine Schultz is our militant grammarian. Catherine is back with us, and we're continuing something we started last time. Well, I do. Uh, we will, but I do have to, oh. to tell you that my granddaughter is in the second grade, and um, the teacher said something about grammar, mm-hmm. and she says, my nana is the militant grammarian. <laughs> Where does she go to school? Uh, in Rogers. Oh, so yeah. there's a chance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, as promised, <laughs> Kyle, here's the second part of our exploration of dog idioms. Yes. News commentators are telling us that this year's presidential campaign is shaping up to be a very tight race. Kyle, what dog idiom might be used to describe the fierce contest the talking heads are predicting? A dog fight? Mm, That would be good, but that's not... Oh. Oh. Uh, It's something that describes a situation fraught with ruthless competition. A dog-eat-dog world. There you go. Uh Uh-huh. Author Doug Lennox tells us that in the year 43 B.C. B.C.? That's going back. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Roman scholar Marcus Varro observed humanity and remarked that even a dog will not eat a dog. Oh, but in a dog-eat-dog world, it's no rules. Right. His point was that humans are less principled in the matter of destroying their own kind than other animals. By the 16th century, the phrase became a metaphor for ruthless competition. And during the Industrial Revolution, the expression, it's a dog-eat-dog world, became commonplace. Here's another one that might bring to mind the political campaigns going on these days. Okay. Kyle, what's a dog and pony show? Okay, I would describe a dog and pony show as something that is not really substantive. You're you're putting on this sort of exhibition that is more about uh, just saying you're doing it rather than actually having any meaning behind it. Hmm? Mm, <laughs> no, no? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, what? When is a dog and pony show likely to come to town? What What are mm-hmm. they doing? They're trying to sell you something. Yeah, okay. there you go. Okay. That's that's. Okay. I think that's the crux of it. This disparaging term, dog and pony show, refers to a showy sales, advertising, sure. or publicity presentation or campaign. Yeah. The you got thrown off because you were thinking politicians. Oh well, yeah. I mean, politicians. Think things that don't really matter. They can come to town and, t- and sell you something. That, the origin of the term can be traced uh, back to the 1920s when small traveling circuses, which toured through rural areas in the United States, used performing dogs and ponies as the main attractions of the events. Gosh, I wish I had been alive back then. Well, I'm wondering if, you know, you'd think, oh, the circus is coming to town. Mm-hmm. Here come the lions and the tigers mm-hmm. and the elephants. And then it's a smaller deal. And he's like, oh, well, dogs I and guess. ponies. I don't know what they did it for, but it would have been fun. <laughs> 
And speaking of campaigns, Mm -hmm. many lament the caustic tone of what passes as debate these days. So what dog idiom might describe one of the more pugilistic contenders? And this isn't dog fight? Mm Mm-mm. You're describing the guy, the person. A junkyard dog? As mean as a junkyard dog, right. The comparison with junkyard dog refers to the guard dogs used to patrol wrecked auto parts Mm -hmm. uh, lots where the losses to midnight thievery would be great without the dog's presence. Right. Another person who might not be any more welcome than a junkyard dog is someone who tells exceedingly long, rambling (laughs) stories, often with a pun at the end. What is the dog idiom that describes the tales such person might tell? A shaggy dog story, yeah. (laughs) By shaggy dog story, we commonly mean a hugely embellished, often rambling tale that ends either in a deflating anticlimax or with an atrocious pun. Or both. (laughs) (laughs) The first shaggy dog story seemed to have been variations on a tall tale that was indeed about a shaggy-haired dog. Mm -hmm. Eric Partridge wrote a monograph called The the Shaggy Dog Story, Its Origin, Development, and Nature in 1953. He said that the best explanation of the term is that it arose in a story very widely circulated only since 1942 or 43, although it apparently was invented in the 30s. Hmm. Well, as I often say these days, I've talked about politics all I want. So I used to hear this idiom all the time, but I haven't recently. What might you or some of your teenage buddies have said when excusing themselves to go to the bathroom? Now I've heard it two ways. Okay. Go see a man about a horse. Yeah. Go see go see a man about a dog. Yeah. 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 Uh, or a parrot. Or <laughs> The expression is also used to excuse oneself for other non-bathroom-related reasons. Some substitute horse for dog uh, in in the expression recorded by the 1860s and perhaps originally concerning dog race betting. Oh, okay. So maybe it arose at the racetrack. Yeah, okay. All right. Kyle, did you teach Daisy to sit and lie down? Well, (laughs) Daisy sits when she wants to. (laughs) No, not really. Okay. She's she's nine years old. She's an Australian cattle dog. She's nine years old and is just full of energy, Uh nonstop. uh So. Sitting is not common. (laughs) She just loves people so much that it's so hard for her to sit when there's a person coming Uh into the house. She just wants to greet them so well. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I have not done that. (laughs) If you had, she probably would have been young when you did because, as you know— Can't teach an old dog new tricks. There you go. This is one I've been telling my wife <laughs> because we didn't get Daisy. And you're not, you're not saying Laura's an no, old no, dog, No, no, right? no. I'm just saying that we, we adopted Daisy when she was six. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Yeah. she's so smart she could probably—I've got to work with her. That's my yeah. resolution for 2024. Okay. Going to get her <laughs> to sit on command. This is one of the oldest idioms in the, in the English language. It's from John Fitzherbert's The Bloke of Husbandry, published in 1534. Husbandry is the care, cultivation, and breeding of crops and animals, so it only makes sense that Mr. Fitzherbert touches on dog training. In the book, he is talking about teaching a dog to bark and run on command. He says that the dog must learn these things as a puppy or else he'll be too old to learn it. I think that was 
for a long time accepted. But I think there are enough dog trainers out there who use, you know, appropriate behavioral techniques. Even they, with older dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Finally, Kyle, here's a little test to see how much more tech savvy you are than I. Yeah. Because I had never heard of this dog idiom. Okay. This is a tech term that describes a company using its own products or services to test or promote them. I don't know it. Can I take a shot in the sure. dark? Sure. Well, a dog chasing its own tail? Eat. Eat? Eat. Uh, wow. Eat your own dog food. Never heard it. Not really I, I, fond of it. Not, not, it's not, <laughs> doesn't really come tripping off the tongue, does no, it? No, it doesn't. Well, one early usage was in 1988 when Paul Moritz, a Microsoft executive, emailed a colleague about testing software. We're going to have to eat our own dog food and test the product ourselves. Mm. The practice is even sometimes called dog fooding. Huh. The phrase has gained traction outside the tech community and has recently been seen in both school mottos and professional guides. I think, what is it, that there's a, an idiom or just uh, advice about sowing, sowing seeds and then not saving seeds for uh, something, something uh, having to do with it. It reminded <laughs> me of this, whatever it was. Okay, Kyle, every dog has has its day, and we've had two of them, so let's let sleeping dog idioms lie. <laughs> okay, and you should let a sleeping dog lie. We know that. Our militant grammarian is Catherine Sheralds. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Jack Travis, Randy Wilburn, and Sophia Narani. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Matthew produced the show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Rest in peace, Bob Edwards. Yeah. Long time, almost 25-year host of Morning Edition. For those of you who've been with KUAF or NPR for some time, you'll remember that that was the default starting voice of your morning yeah yeah uh, great great pieces uh, about him on all things considered yesterday in morning edition today if you have a chance you can go to npr.org and and listen to him yeah uh one little bit from my interview with darby uh we talked on thursday before the weather was supposed to hit this weekend and i had asked him just kind of vaguely i'm like how do you know when you're sure and he was just like well i have no idea and he was uh, really torn up about trying to figure out what was going to happen this weekend but and he nailed it we talked to him in the hall mm-hmm. and what he told us was exactly what happened yeah he said it's probably going to go north of us and, and he was right sure enough it did all right we'll be back tomorrow i'm kyle i'm matthew moore thanks Little Tinkers at the Scott Family Amazium is back on the second Saturday of each month starting in March and ending in May. The Amazium invites adults and children to be innovative thinkers and work together to try new things. Tickets and information at amazium.org. Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families celebrates the 23rd annual Soup Sunday, February 18th at the Rogers Convention Center from 4.30 to 6.30 p.m. This family-friendly fundraiser includes soups and breads, desserts, live music, and auction items. 
479-927-9800 or aradvocates.org for tickets.